This is Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. The unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. And you can follow us on Twitter. Micah is at Micah Bays, all one word. And I am at John Sextro, all one word. And now, this week's episode. I'm Micah Bays. And I'm John Sextro. And we're back here again with the podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about Chapter 7. The title of Chapter 7 is My Last Year and My Greatest Challenge. It covers the time frame from... 2016 through 2017 for Dalio. And just to recap the chapter real quick, it's brief. So as you're reading it, you'll notice, of course, how brief it is. Uh, But uh, at this point, Dalio is moving away from being the CEO. He's trying to start, seems like, separating himself from the day-to-day operations. As such, he realized, you know, he's transitioning. He's transitioning the leadership to another CEO, they run into some problems and we're going to come back and deep dive into that because that's the interesting part we think about the chapter, Uh, work through some of those problems. And uh, then Dalio decides that he doesn't know as much about running the company as maybe he previously thought. So he goes out and gets some consulting help from a guy named Jim Collins, who is a big time business management um, consultant to help figure out how to go about creating a machine for uh, managing managing the the role of CEO and more importantly, what to do if someone in that role fails and what to do about that. Maybe we'll talk a little more about that, Micah. And then ultimately um, in April, 2017, Dalio is able to again, step back from the CEO role so that he can, as he says in his, in his words, begin moving from the second phase of life to the third phase of life. And in that third phase of life, he says that the third phase is, living freely and being free to die, which I don't know. It's a little depressing. We'll come back. Yeah. To, we'll come back to that. Micah, that's the brief recap of the chapter. So I think one of the things we wanted to talk more deeply about was uh, what Greg went through in his hero's journey and the implications that I guess that sort of context that, that uh, the, the failures, the, the trouble, um, what all of that means from a philosophical perspective and maybe what we can, what we can learn from those situations. But I think that um, Ray or Dalio feels like he put Greg into a, into a tough spot, had a lot of high expectations for him. And I know, you know, one of his quotes in there is that he regretted that as a mistake because it hurt both of them. It hurt Greg. It hurt, it hurt Ray. Um, in terms of their relationship and just personally in terms of the the strife that it put them through. So what do you think are the things maybe that we can start to learn from the failures that occurred in this transition? What's, what is, what's interesting there for us to learn about Micah from a philosophical perspective or from just your general perspective? Yeah. You know, so I think, you know, from a quote unquote philosophical perspective, I think, you know, one of the things I, have learned to do, and I certainly don't do this as well as I could or should, but 
Um, but to evaluate the sources that I'm getting information from, right? So if someone's advocating to me a particular position, you know, I, I try to step back and say, okay, so-and-so says such and such is true. Well, there's a question about, is that person believable, right? Do I have a good reason to believe that what they say is true, right? So this is a question about um, the trustworthiness of a source. Um, and one of those questions is going to be, does this person have expertise in that area? Um, and so, right, in this case, you know, and really with this whole book, right, we're interested in Ray um, and what he has to say about, you know, radical truth, radical transparency, about idea meritocracy, because he's had a lot of success. Um, and so, you know, our hope is, or, yeah, our hope or our belief is that he has learned something, right? He has some kind of knowledge, some kind of expertise that we can trust him in what he says to some degree. Now, um, yeah, there's a difference here. So one is sometimes we believe something that someone has said just because they've said it, right? And so in that case, it's important that they be trustworthy with respect to whatever topic they're addressing. You mean just because of the fact that a person takes the moment in time to communicate something that our default position there is that we, we believe that whatever it is they're saying is true. Like the sky is blue and someone else sort of automatically believes that that's a true statement. Um, yeah. So, right. It's without argument. Um, you know, they don't give reason in the case where they don't give reasons as to why you should believe them. If they just say, Hey, such and such is true. Um, well, the question is, are they trustworthy? Can you believe what they say about yeah, that? Right. Um, but now there's another scenario where someone could tell you something is true, but then they give you reasons, right, to believe that it's true. Um, so they say X is true, and they say, well, X is true, and the reason you can believe that is not just on my like authority or my saying it, but because reason one, you know, and then reason two, and we can see that from that it follows that what I've said, you know, is true. Of course, you would also have to have reason to believe that reason one and reason two are true, uh, but that gets into you know, sure. more difficult stuff. But there's sort of a, there's sort of a general colloquialism that you may have heard before that is in God we trust. Everyone else needs to bring data. <laughs> right. That's the that's that supporting evidence data, whatever you to back up the statements. Right. Yeah, and it gets a little dicey into which scenarios you know can we trust people and which scenarios do we need, you know, supporting evidence, you know, to have good reason to believe what they say. Sure. Um, but in this case, right. Um, we're interested in what Ray has to say because he's had success. And so presumably we think he's got some kind of expertise in this area about being successful. Right. Um, that's interesting because yes, I think the, I think I would, yes. And what you said there in that, there's maybe we're listening to what he has to say because he's successful. But I think that m more than that, it's that he's through some, some amount of trial and error figured out things that worked better than other things. And the reason he has a platform that allows him to write a book 
and, and uh, publicize the book and do all the things you have to do to do a book is from that success. But that innately there, there are trial and errors that he, he learned things um, and, and maybe has proven to us to a certain extent, which you might comment on how true they are, but that they, they are better ways to try things or do things. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, so one of the things is, you know, reading this book, one, you could just take everything at face value that Ray says and go, well, he says this, so it's true. Of course, now he's very, um, uh, what's the word? He's non-dogmatic in what he says, right? Um, so he doesn't say, just take him at his word for it. As a matter of fact, he says, don't take me at my word for it. Try these things out and figure out what is true for you. Right. That's early in the introduction or first chapter or something. Right. We went over that. Yep. And so that is the other thing is that, you know, not only can we read the things he claims, but then, you know, if in the book he offers us reasons to believe what he said, then we can evaluate those arguments. Um, uh, and so, and that's certainly what we're setting out to do here, right? In this podcast, we're trying to assess his arguments to some degree. Um, but on the whole, right. Um, I'm just thinking about it from uh, why are we interested in Ray in the first place, right? Because we think he has reasons, right, for his success. We think he has a certain kind of skill, a certain kind of knowledge. And so um, what's interesting to me with this, you know, failure to successfully transition to a new CEO is, you know, you might wonder, well, does that call into question the success that he's had? Does it? call into question the methodologies he's put into place, right? You think about the idea of meritocracy where he's wanting, right, his, his goal is to have the best ideas, you might say, rise to the top. And that's what ultimately is um, relied upon in decision-making for the company. And so, right, this was an unsuccessful, at least initially, transition to a new CEO. And it's not as though this was an unexpected transition, right? Like it wasn't like Ray died and then, you know, someone came in and fill him um, or something like that. They knew this transition was going to happen. They um, planned for it. They carefully thought it out and yet it still failed. Right. So you might think, well, how great is this idea of meritocracy in the first place? So I'm going to be. I'm going to start off a little skeptical here um, with respect to Ray, and then um, I'm going to circle back around to maybe spell some of the skepticism we might have. Um, but some of the reasons we might have to be skeptical about Ray um, and the idea of idea of meritocracy and radical truth and radical transparency, and it's you might say importance to success, um, which which I think includes like the principles themselves and the systematized approach to everything that Dalio does. And how does that factor into the, the failure? Right. Um, so uh, for certainly what's playing into my head to some degree is um, I've read portions of uh, a book by Daniel Kahneman. I think I may have mentioned this book before, uh, but I read, I've read a, a portion of it and um, Kahneman's book, thinking fast and slow. Uh, he's a so Kahneman is a psychologist, uh, but he won the Nobel Prize for economics, right? Kind of weird. Um, yeah, but it was because he explained how 
economics doesn't work quite the way economists thought it worked. Um, Economists presumed people were ideally rational, roughly. And Kahneman has pointed out a lot of the ways in which our psychology makes mistakes and errors and that those erroneous thoughts affect our economic decision-making. And one of the things that Kahneman looks at uh, is when can we rely on intuitions? And one of the things for Kahneman is um, he thinks investments, you know, the stock market isn't something that we can really be experts at. Um, So you can't really have a, you know, a stockbroker who's an expert in the market. Now they could be an expert as far as knowing all the terminology of the stock market, right? What bonds are and, you know, those kinds of things like terminology, but, as far as the concept of beating the market. Yes. Right? Yeah. Kahneman's going to say, you can't really be an expert at that. And we can't go all into that here, but that is playing in my mind. Like he's, so Kahneman's going to say, um, yeah, you'll see people who are successful at the stock market, but that's not because of, not because of their knowledge. Um, most of that is attributable to success, right? They just happened, you might say, to be lucky more than others. Um, and so then it starts me, of course, thinking about Ray here, right? They're obviously involved with investments. And so it's this concern of, well, is Ray really successful because of idea meritocracy and because of you know the algorithms and so on? Or is that just all largely chance? And so now we're discussing him, right? because he's just luckily successful. Um, so that's a concern. Um, and also, you know, I th- just think it's interesting to point out kind of the significance of this failure to Ray. Um, earlier in the book, uh, page 79 in the Ultimate Boon chapter, he says, the greatest success you can have as the person in charge is to orchestrate others to do things well without you. Right. So one thing is just to get into the psychology of Ray at this point, as far as understanding the significance to him, presumably, of this failure. You know, that's the ultimate success that one can have or the greatest success. And here it is. You know, he's failed at it, at least initially. Um, so I think, you know, he would see that as a big problem. Um, well, before you move on to the next topic, I wonder if, uh, if he would agree with that or just, I wonder in general about that statement that you made that he would see his, his own failure or a failure as a problem. Uh, because I think that as we've learned from the previous chapters that we've read without any future, without spoil any spoilers or future, uh, looking into the book that, you know, the, the worst thing you could do is like hide a failure or, or punish someone for a failure. The best thing to do is to to learn from that failure, and uh, use use what you learn from that failure. Adapt that to your model, so that your model's better for the future, uh, to better predict, better understand how what success what what needs to happen in order to achieve success. Right. So you actually kind of touch on you know where I'm going to go as far as why we might not want to be overly skeptical at this point. Right. Um, so one, you know, Ray certainly hasn't said he's 
perfect, right? He hasn't, no. you know, offered perfection and, and said, Hey, you know, every, every decision we make is going to be perfect and there's never going to be any errors, right? He's very well aware that he's going to make errors. Um, and so for him, right, he does want to make these, um, he wants to write these down, right? So write down his algorithms, write down his decision-making processes and reasons so that then he can evaluate them in retrospect and say, Hey, well, where did we make the mistake here? I do think it's a very natural thing for people to see someone have a failure and immediately their minds go to, why should I listen to that person though? Uh, and if you just, if you just stop there in the evaluation of Dalio and the things that he's done, you probably quickly, pretty quickly get off track because the man has had some pretty, some pretty fantastic failures, both in investing in, and in his management of the business. Uh, this one being an example of failure in the management of the business, mm-hmm. right? But it's yeah. what it's what he's been able to do and how he's been able to recover and improve, improve his models, improve his approach that um, that make it extraordinary or or successful. Right. Yeah. And I think what I want to be careful about is you know when a person is, is successful, attributing that success to their skills. Yeah. Right? And when yeah. they fail saying, well, you know, those are circumstances beyond their control. Um, so is there a way to not do that with raised success? Is there a way to attribute the success to s- skill, at least to some degree? Um, and, you know, I wouldn't think Ray would say, well, there's no luck involved at all in his success. So one thing uh, that w- I think would be interesting is what would Kahneman say about Dalio and the way that Bridgewater works and their investments, you know, their investment strategies, would he see it as any different than other stockbrokers and so on? Um, right. In part, one of Kahneman's things is, you know, people rely on their intuitions too much. And uh, for example, he says, don't ever buy a house or don't ever buy a car without making a list, right? Write down what is exactly you're looking for in a house. What exactly is it you're looking for in a car? Because otherwise you get into that scenario, right? And you might get really focused on, oh, that car looks so nice, right? But did you think about, does it have all of the features that you're really wanting, right? Because of our psychology, we might um, stop. We might not remember all the things that we really wanted in a car. But if you've got a list, right, and you go and check out the car, then those are things that are visible. They're there. They're, you know set in stone, you might say. And so then you can know, okay, I need to check this one off. I need to check this, you know, feature off. Um, and they're, they're easy to evaluate for the most part, depending on what your list is, but it's like less than $30,000. That's an easy thing to evaluate. Check. Okay. $28,000. Boom. Or has to have air conditioning. Check. Needs to have leather seats. Check. Right. Those are right. sort of true or false things that are, that help you with the evaluation. Right. That are take the emotion, I guess, maybe, or the, maybe what you're called the psychology in this case, out of, out of it. it. Right. And so, you know, we can see that certainly Ray does this in a way, right, with his algorithms, right? He's writing down, okay, here's the principles by which we're um, making our investment decisions. And then we can go back to that, you know, after the investment has been made, after we've seen the results, and we can reevaluate it again. So, you know, I'm curious if the way that Ray has done this with the algorithms if Kahneman would see that as any different, right? Yeah. It's, it seems to me that what he's done and, and I don't think any of the, the principles themselves um, I don't, lead us to any, 
any financial stock picking revelations. They they don't deal with that. Right. They deal with the decision making process and how um how somehow if you listen to what Condiman says about what you were saying, Micah, where there's a certain amount of luck involved, it seems like these principles and the way that they behave, the the way that the principles uh, motivate people to behave, might be somewhat akin to that list that you're that you laid out, going to buy a car or make a decision to buy a house, etc. Where it's almost like, hey, that's our list of things to say. Don't let the hype and and maybe the adrenaline and the salesman and you know other hype sort of things that you've heard impact your psychology let's go back to base elements in dalio's case it's his these principles that they use to get in sync about what's true and what what they believe and who to believe mm-hmm. in order to um make decisions because they have that you you would think that you would see more and i don't know deep details about, I don't know that anybody does other than Dalio and the people inside of his company, how really successful they are in terms of the trading that they do and, and the financial work that they do. But you, it seems that they're a very successful company. And so they must have had years and years of strings of very good investment decisions. And it would, it would seem to me that that would counter condiments thing of it's luck and that, you know, the, the luck can only last for so long. Right. Well, so one, a little bit of pushback and then uh, I'll retract, but uh, a little (laughs) bit of pushback is, you know, even with like flipping a coin, right? It's a 50, 50 chance heads or tails. Well, if you flip a coin enough, right, you're going to get some segment where you of those flips where it's all heads for like four or five or six. And you might say, Oh wow, look at that. You know? Right. But that's still luck. Right. And so you could argue, well, okay, sure. We might see some investment companies that have more success than others, but that could still be attributable to success or to attributable to luck, right? Um, in the same way that flipping a coin, you know, you can s- see certain outcomes. Yeah, um, I see the logic in that argument. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, of course, how can we truly differentiate? quote unquote, successful investment companies that have good reasons yeah. and, and successful ones just because of luck. The lucky ones. Right. So what do you think? How, how can we? Well, so uh, one thing just to bring back to Kahneman, you know, Kahneman doesn't say that um, all success or that success is attributable entirely to luck. He says it's talent plus luck. And he does think that the more talent you have, the greater your chance of being able to take advantage of good luck. Right. And so, um, you know, he talks about that with respect to himself and winning the Nobel prize, you know, he's going to say, look, there are other people who are doing just as good a work as he was. It just so happens that, you know, he got himself in the right places, you know, luckily at the right times, but nonetheless, right. If he hadn't developed his skills, he couldn't have taken advantage of those good opportunities. Yeah, you have to do, there's a certain amount of work that an individual has to do to prepare themselves for the right place at the right time. You have to, you have to be there. You have to, you have to be in that space. You have to be doing something, right? So there's all sorts of things you have to do so that when the right place and time happen, you can take advantage of them. Right. 
And so I think that's where, you know, we can start thinking about Ray again here as far as, okay, maybe he can't determine absolutely whether he's going to be successful. But one question is, are these principles that he has, you know, the concept of radical truth, radical transparency, idea of meritocracy, are those the kinds of things that are, you might say, like talents, right? Are these things that really make you better, make you smarter, make you better able to make decisions? And if so, then, yeah, when the right opportunity comes along, you're going to have more success, even though you aren't really in control of whether those opportunities come along, right? Or the degree to which they come along, right? Some of it, right? You do create opportunities for yourself. Some of them fall in your lap, that kind of thing. Um, so I think the thing to think about uh, with respect to Ray here and success is if we think that having more truth increases your chance of being successful, then do we think that Ray's principles help us get truth, right? Do they increase our chance that we're going to better understand things? And so if radical truth you know, having that attitude of being willing to know what the truth is, no matter what you desire it to be. Um, do we think that that's something that increases our chance of getting at the truth? Likewise, does radical transparency increase our chance of getting at the truth? If so, then it seems like we have some reason to think that what Ray's up to has some reason to increase our chance at yeah. success. So um, what do you, what do you think? What's your, your sort of top down look at it? If you, if you have more truth or if you're able to find out more, if you're able to dig deep enough to find the truth in things, which maybe is aided by this, uh, this availability of the data through the transparency. Do you think that that's going to aid you long-term in in being more successful or having, or maybe it's having the opportunities to be more successful? Yeah, I think on the whole, right. I definitely want to have some caveats here and, you know, of course, <laughs> of course, philosophy. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's a broader picture, right? Cause there's questions about, you know, even if some mechanism or process is helpful for getting at the truth, right. For me at least, right. There might be instances in where getting at the truth would have to be done in an illegitimate means. Right. So for example, um, insider trading, right. Uh, I could, get at the truth better, right? I'm sure. going mean, to know how that company's going to do. And would that make me more successful, you know, as an, if I'm in investments? Yes. Right. Presuming I don't get caught, but there's also a question for me of, well, there's other considerations. I think there are other values than just truth. And so it might be that, you know, even if I have the opportunity to do some investment, some insider trading, I might need to say no to gaining that truth for other reasons, right? There are other goods in life that are, that would be, might say hindered or destroyed by pursuing truth in that manner. So it's a complicated issue, but yeah, generally speaking, I think the more truth you have, the more likely you are to be successful. We operate the podcast on the value for value model. We are entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, you can donate to the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Dalio's principles and click support this podcast. There are even more ways to support the show. You can dazzle all of your friends with information learned on the show, 
and share the show with them on social media. Also, you can review us on iTunes. It'd be awesome if you blog about it or even talked about our podcast on your very own podcast. And you can always direct your friends to our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash Dalio's principles. And now back to the show. So we sort of went down this line of thinking. You started off down this line of thinking, Micah, by reflecting initially on Dalio and the six and the failure, sorry, the failure that he experienced uh, through the trying to transition to Greg, the new CEO and what that means for the, the evaluation of Dalio and, and his principles and, and what he holds true. Have you, have you sort of come through an arc here in, in terms of your thinking back around to, and where does that take you uh, in terms of uh, evaluating or understanding philosophically what, what Dalio has done and what he, what that means for his success or his maybe, maybe more importantly in our eyes, the eyes of the readers as well, his believability in the context of the book and the principles themselves. I guess I'm in, I'm inclined to think that what he has to offer is going to be helpful for success. But I also have reservations about, well, how do I really know, right, that this is going to be helpful? Um, especially, you know, right, he mentions Jim Collins, or, you know, he consults with Jim Collins, right? Jim Collins wrote the book, Good to Great. Um, I read that here with you know, our company uh, as part of a book club that we actually had. And there, there are people who have pointed out concerns about Collins's book um, in that, you know, of the 11 companies, nine of them are still successful, but two are failures. Um, I think it was... Uh, Circuit well, City was one of them. Yeah, Circuit City. And then was the other... Well, I don't want to say it because I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, someone else pointed out, I think I've read this on Wikipedia, but that's largely a tr- truthful source. <laughs> um, if you had invested in those 11 companies uh, at the time the book came out, you would actually be underperforming the S&P 500, right? So there's a concern about whether those kinds of business books, you know, how much you can really rely on them to get you um, success in your business. Um, and so that at the very least puts a amount of doubt in my head, right? As I'm reading this, I think I'm better off, right? I'm more comfortable. You might say thinking about, okay, insofar as I think truth is a good thing, right? In being successful, I want to evaluate Ray's principles and Ray's, you know, yeah, Ray's principles along those lines. Do I think what he's offering is a better way at getting that truth than I'm currently, you know, pursuing? So just on, on the same topic with the Ray sharing the, the failure in the book, and what does that mean? I'll share that in the in my initial reading of the book when I read when I came across this, it really caused me to take pause and think very hard about do I want to keep reading this? I did. Obviously, I'm here. <laughs> we have the podcast. You are here. I can uh, I can vouch for that. You are here, John. Thank you. Uh, confirmation of that. And and I came to realize that. What I where I where I landed with this in my thinking was that there's no reason why Dalio needed to 
share that, share recount the the story of this failure uh, with the transition of the CEO. Maybe very few people even in the world know this information. It wouldn't be like somebody would go back to him and say, Oh, you had this failure. Don't forget you had that failure. Um, I, I think that the intention behind sharing it, even though in some people's minds, it might damage their level of credibility in him or his believability is to demonstrate that he holds himself to the same level of standards, that he's not perfect. But I don't think he's ever tried to say that he was perfect. And I think on a number of occasions, as I mentioned throughout the early chapters of this book that we've read thus far, he shares failures and, and the failures are just as important to the success as are, as it is when you get it right the first time. And then maybe, maybe that's sort of the luck side of it, getting it right the first time, documenting what you did in order to get it right the first time. But then also being able to really deeply evaluate when things went poorly and be able to step back and say, man, that just was a complete screw up. And I just couldn't do anything right. And I thought I knew things and um, I have a, I have a multi-million billion, whatever dollar business. And yet here I am now um, sort of alone and feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. And that's a really humbling, probably a very humbling moment for a person. And to step back and say, I got I have to go get a consultant, Jim Collins to come in and, and help me figure this out again, humbling. How many people could, could um, humble themselves in that way to say, I'm the, I'm the owner, the creator, the entrepreneur of this company. Yet I realize that I have some shortcom shortcomings. I need to compensate for those and I need to go get some help. And so I think that it's very, um, it's very instructive to who Dalio is and that he is able to, really, uh, you know, be self-aware of where his shortcomings are. Maybe not always, but to realize at some point and then try to take action and bring in really smart expert people to get their help. Of course, a guy like Jim Collins, also not perfect. The, the company's in, in good to great that didn't end up being successful. I think Collins would caveat with what we know today with those companies saying that, well, it, the great didn't necessarily mean that they were great investments <laughs> that um, the companies also were evaluated at a point in time and a company like circuit city, when they were evaluated, they may have been great and then made a series of terrible decisions that, that um, made them less than great and ultimately out of business. Uh, but I, I just, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the thinking and the thought process and, and the evaluation that I went through in reading this chapter to figure out, how much did, how much credibility and believability would I continue to invest in Dalio in the book? Right. Yeah. And I think too, you know, um, I think Ray mentioned that as a result of the difficult transition, uh, there's, there are a lot of rumors around about, you know, what the cause was. And apparently like, you know, people were saying, I guess like it was a big blowout between he and Greg. Um, and you know, he could have just totally just ignored that or just, you know, put on a, very, you know, could have come out and just blatantly lie and say, Oh no, nothing's wrong. We're perfectly fine. Right. You know, he could have made some public statement like that, but yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, he fessed up to, Hey, yeah, things haven't gone well. Now he did 
reject a lot of the rumors that were going around about the nature of the disagreement, nature of the problem. Um, but nonetheless, he did admit, yeah, this wasn't a, was not a successful transition. And then he showed the resiliency and the ability to bounce back in this chapter by getting that help and ultimately uh, reenacting the transition and being able to step away. So in the chapter, we get to see that full arc uh, from Dalio's perspective of trying to do something very, very important, very, very hard, failing, living through the failure, uh, the repercussions that the failure had on he and the other individual, Greg, and then what they, what he did to adapt and compensate for that, improve, and then ultimately be successful, which, um, again, I think it's very it's a very interesting arc to see Dalio recount how he navigated through that. Yeah. Um, one thing I, to go back to your question about, you know, how I kind of view Ray and, you know, in light of this, uh, you know, failure and, you know, my attitude, you might say toward the book and, you know, do I believe it or something like that? One thing that's interesting. Well, one thing to point out is, you know, even in right, the sciences, there are failures, right. In the sense of at one time we'll say, Hey, science says, for a silly example, Pluto was a planet, right? Now we say, no, Pluto's not a planet. He's a dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the uh, discoverer of Pluto? No. Clyde Tombaugh from Kansas. Oh. That's the only reason I know that. And, You're a big Kansas guy. Well, yes. And that and that my uh, um, earth science teacher, Mr. Brown, uh, was very proud of the fact that we had a Kansan who discovered Pluto. So he was very disheartened when um, they took it away again. Exactly. Yeah. I see. It's just some rock out there. Seems like it's gone back and forth some. Yeah. Um, But, you know, even, you know, that's one kind of trivial example, but, you know, other like sciences, you know, think about all the reports about, hey, if you drink coffee, it's bad for your health. If you drink coffee, it's good for your health. Right. And there's, you know, really big controversy um, that's growing, I guess, about, you know, what do we need to do to have scientific studies that are um, reliable, that are repeatable and so on. Um, so one thing where I, one way to approach this is to say, Oh, look, there was a mistake made in the sciences. So now I'm going to just say, forget science entirely. Right. That seems like a bad way to go forward. Great. Throw science out. <laughs> yeah. No more science. Yeah. Just because there's failures doesn't mean you want to just give up on it, right? You kind of have to work with what you've got. And so I guess in some ways that, because otherwise, you know, I do probably have this tendency of if I'm skeptical about something, like, well, how do I know? Yeah, I can have this tendency to want to just not, you know, make any decisions based on it. Um, but the reality is, if I applied that to everything, I couldn't make any decisions about anything at all, right? Um, so it's kind of, uh, hey, let's go with the way things seem best. I think as a society, we become so focused, Micah, on confirming someone's belief and even in a scientific in a scientific perspective to say I'm I'm running an experiment and I I want to find out if this chemical this medication is going to have you know positive outcomes on someone's health there's so, we're so focused on like confirming that and wanting it to be true that we forget that half of science at the very least half of science is also figuring out what's not true that it doesn't work you know, when, when they invented, who was it that invented the light bulb? Edison. Edison. Right? You know, they, somebody said to him, you, you, it took you 
like a thousand tries to invent the light bulb. And he's like, well, I found out 999 ways not to do it. But people forget the, how important it is to figure out what doesn't work as well as what does work. And if we, from a scientific perspective in our society, could, could put an equal amount of importance on those things, I think we'd stop forcing these scientific communities into the, these rash decisions and always trying to just assume or force, forcing the, the belief and the assumption that they should get the right answer the first time all of the time. That's an incredibly high bar that I don't think anyone can ever live up to. Right. Getting it yeah. right the first time all the time. Not possible. Right. Well, I, I had, I think we should talk a little bit about some points to ponder. And Mike, I'm not sure if you have one, but I'll, I'll go ahead and get started because I have one. And it's actually something that's been rattling around in my brain for a while. And this, as we are again talking about this chapter, um, really crystallized it in my mind, especially when you talked, Micah, about Kahneman and the, the amount of luck that's involved with being successful. And then again, this thing about that we just here briefly discussed with, with um, expecting that someone can get something right the first time all of the time. And I think about uh, people that are sort of, I'll call them dot-com millionaires, but I'm, what I'm really thinking of nowadays anyway is like app developer success stories where a, a person has, has created a new hot app and it goes crazy successful. You know, maybe it's like, it's like Instagram or it's the next Instagram or it's WhatsApp or it's, I don't know, you know, you pick your favorite, your favorite app and, and, and consider that. So I think there's a couple of things to think about with the people that have had success in those areas. One is how many times did they fail? Twitter, when, when Twitter started, the original idea that the people that created Twitter built was some sort of a podcasting platform. And uh, soon in the development, they're like, this is never going to work. And they pivoted it and they created Twitter. So they had a success there, but they had a failure. How much believability could you put into someone who's built an app and they got it right the first time and that's their big success? Now they're a multimillionaire. They're uh, you know a talking head that everybody listens to. I would be less inclined to believe that person than an app developer that has done 20 different apps and 19 of them have failed. And finally, number 20 is is successful and not even like wildly successful. But I think that person would know so much more about what it takes to do a successful app than the person that got it right the first time out of the gate and had no experience in uh, with failure. So my, I guess my point for people to ponder there is in your life, look around for people that have maybe had more failures and leverage those people to help us learn what not to do as much as what to do. Well, that's this chapter of the book, chapter seven, and we'll be back next time with chapter eight. Thanks, John. And uh, sorry, people, I don't have a point to ponder for you. That's all right. We'll expect two next time. Will do. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals.